build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast. We are on episode 88. Today's guest is Sai Wakeman. Sai is a dynamic international keynote speaker, business consultant, New York Times bestselling author, and global thought leader with over 25 years of experience, cultivating a revolutionary new approach to leadership. Her newest and most anticipated book is called No Ego, and it has been released on September 19th, 2017. We talk here about reality-based leadership, and we do this across cultures. Now, what reality-based leadership is, Sai will perfectly explain. She talks about ego, which is something different than the Freud ego. And we also, uh, towards the end, talk about super culture. So make sure you stay tuned towards the end. Oh, and one more thing. If you're um, only listening to this on the podcast, it makes sense to also check out the YouTube video because there are some extraordinary paintings to be seen in the background when uh, when you see side talk. Go to culturematters.com slash YouTube. Let's get to the interview right now. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Sai, good morning. Good morning, Chris. It's good afternoon here. It's good morning there, right? Exactly. Good morning. Okay. All right. And good, good afternoon. And a good afternoon here. Okay. If it's a good morning for you and a good after, afternoon for me, that means we're not in the same time zone. So we're. I, I know you a little bit, um, but nobody knows you in terms of uh, possibly the audience of the Culture Matters podcast. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where do you come from? Uh, where are you currently? And what would you consider your so-called cultural frame of reference? Sure. I've been raised in the United States, and I'm actually in my office in Omaha, Nebraska today, which is unusual. I travel about four to five days a week. I'm in over 200 countries, or 200 companies each year, uh-huh. and I get the opportunity with that to be in many countries. Um, my frame of reference, I grew up in a very small town in um, Iowa, a farming community, and uh, pretty homogeneous uh, cultural backgrounds, but uh, was so fortunate in my high school and college years to um, live and travel extensively. And actually, I um, graduated from Gymnasium in um, Deutschland in Germany. Okay. So I have um, some experience on the European continent. Okay. All right. Well, that that sounds interesting. Omaha, Nebraska. How, many, how much time difference is that? It's, um, it's a quarter past four here. What time are you at? It's um, 9 a.m., a quarter past nine here okay. in the morning. All right. Okay. So Fair you enough. can do the math on that. Yes. So <laughs> in, in business-wise, I started out as a therapist or a counselor uh-huh. and then became a leader in healthcare. So I went from studying 
international relations in college uh-huh. in university and ended up going back and getting a degree and being a counselor and then went on to get my master's degree in healthcare administration which is all about the business side of healthcare okay. and um, I've been um, researching and writing ever since on the topic of drama in the workplace how do you match that i mean how do you match that with the previous thing Exactly. It's been kind of a, a windy road. But for me, it's always been the study of how um, humans not only spend their energy and to what return on investment, but in international relations, it was a lot about how egos show up as countries mm-hmm. and then as a counselor about how egos show up individually. And now, since ego is the main source of drama in the workplace, how our egos come out to play at work so that uh, – and we may not even know that they're out to play, but they create a lot of emotional waste and really distract us from great results. Results and wonderful working environments, and so I think the the red thread through all of that has been the study of ego and the um, chaos it can create um, in business or in life. Okay, this, we're going to talk about this because um, uh, a little bit further down the podcast, because this is you're referring to your book, your upcoming book. At least at the time time of the recording, your ego is not your amigo. That's the right. book that you're you're referring to, which will be published on September nineteenth, twenty seventeen, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, having, absolutely. Having and the title that, is is all about your ego not being your amigo. The official title, if people are looking for that, is No Ego and How Leaders Can Cut the Cost of Drama, End Entitlement, and Drive Big Results. Okay, all right. Well, I, I, I definitely want to dig into that a little bit further, um, a little bit later in this podcast interview. Um, but for the people who are listening to this in the future, this book has been published on September 19, 2017. Um, but we'll, we'll mention it a couple of times uh, further down the line. In the, in my research in terms of preparing for this podcast, I came across, um, a phrase here. It says your first degree was in international relations, uh, with yes. an emphasis on third world economic development, right? Yep. And then you've worked internationally throughout Europe, like you said, in Germany. Well, you've been in Germany when you were younger, at least Mexico, Australia. Australia and India as well. You've traveled extensively with your own kids, your own children working to interrupt their own thinking about culture and life. So I'm curious, um, as a an American that has a passport and has been outside of his own country or her own country, you know, please tell us a little bit how that period has shaped you, maybe your kids as well, but also your view on current business or leadership as such. Absolutely. I think the biggest way that travel has shaped me and what I'm hoping then to do for my kids is, you know, we all are are ethnocentric, I think, growing up and Mm -hmm. especially in America, we're well protected from the rest of the world. And so I can grow up really believing that little bit that I know is the right way. So if just because I've experienced it, part of me comes to believe that it's the right or only way. And when I was um, a student in Germany, I was blown away the first time I was in history class mm-hmm. because I'm hearing the history as presented in Germany about the same world events. And I realized that what I thought history was just a telling of the facts was a huge interpretation through my own lens. I was like 16 years old and it blew my mind to think that 
there were other ways of seeing the exact same events. And it came to me then how often we um, interpret reality or distort reality, whether it's through ego, which is a judgmental biased way of distorting reality, or just through our own cultural lens. And um, can, it got can you give an be, example? Can you, can you give a specific absolutely. example? So um, when we were talking about um, – I was, um, this will date me, but I was in um, Germany during the years that um, President Reagan was a president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, in the United States, it was all about Reagan kept us safe. And then I stopped every single day on my way riding my bike to gymnasium to wait for these huge caravans of American armed forces to pass through the city that I was in. Mm -hmm. And not only was it irritating, but it was... um, offensive in a way and then I um my coloring is very dark and at the times I would be a lot of times assumed to be from Turkish descent Uh and the Turkish people were guest workers in Germany at the time and so I was also um exposed to some of the um negativity around the guest worker program because people would assume that I was German and one time I said I got very angry and I said to a gentleman who was negative towards me I said please stop I'm not Turkish Mm. and he said well what are you and I said I'm American. And he said, that's the only thing worse. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty straightforward. Because there was so much military Uh in um, the, and then I started to see how um, people's different perspectives were as we traveled then to Moscow um, during my gymnasium time. And I met with somebody in Russia mm-hmm. and was a friend of theirs. And um, we were there for a couple of weeks. And we were talking about, I had been taught that Russians had lots of propaganda. And she made a comment that she said, well, at least we know our news is propaganda. And this was in the 80s. And so mm-hmm. all over the place, for specific examples, my mind was just being blown because I realized how narrow my exposure and interpretation of the world was. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know what to think, but I knew to question what I think. Mm. And that is um, something I I work with a lot of my kids and employees on is be very careful what you think you know for sure. And um, don't always believe everything you think and really question it. Really pay attention to your experiences and look for how you're wrong and instead of why you're right. Because most of us try and and look for confirmation of how we're right. And um, those experiences really taught me to look for confirmation of how I could be wrong on this because that really opens me up to some even better um, approaches or, or you know, together we're genius, a more inclusive thought. Okay. What, what is the biggest thing um, that stuck in your mind whereby you still re- remember back, like, I was really wrong about this or that? Oh, my gosh. Um, or well, had def- a different opinion. I mean, right and wrong, yeah. is, it makes it so black and white. It, it does. Um, just such a different opinion on – it's hard to pinpoint one because I could say, like, most of the world um, – some of it became a better understanding of my own father. My mm-hmm. father was um, – his family was an immigrant and we not he would take – Not from Turkey. No. <laughs> um, but they were, they were um, gypsy by background, which uh-huh. is even more interesting. Yes. But um, he would very much every Sunday take us and we saw it as just a – 
um, a mandatory family fun day where he would take us to look at art or listen to music. And he really focused on the humanities at a time in my schooling, we we're very focused on the sciences. And he just really, um, talked about how important it was to be well-rounded in the humanities. And when I, um, came to live in Germany, mm -hmm. one of the things I was um, wrong about, or at least unprepared for is, um, really coming to understand how hard it is to relate to, um, other people when you don't have a grasp of history or great mm. literature or um, international um, art pieces. Like mm -hmm. there's some great work that many cultures have brought. And if you haven't been touched by their art or their music or their work, you know, when I'm traveling throughout India, mm -hmm. it's very difficult then to really connect with the people. Yes. And so it, it was a way that I found out I was wrong in not agreeing with my dad, thinking this was just old country stuff. Uh -huh. But it really was a portal that um, could connect me to many, many people. Okay. Out of the countries that you've, that you've visited or in, outside of the U.S., that is, what is your most favorite country? You know, I would have to say that um, it would be India. Mm -hmm. I am absolutely in love with India. And India is you know, thousands of countries, it yes. seems like within one country. Um, and so I've traveled in, you know, the South, I haven't been um, to the East yet, but the South, the West, the North, and um, everything from a wonderful houseboat trip through the backwaters mm -hmm. of Southern India, um, clear down to leaving and, and going to the Maldives, a different country, but yep. um, absolutely love all the paradoxes in India, all of the the visual sensations and um, just really disarming and um, almost uh, gets you off your center so that you can learn. It gets you out of your comfort, comfort zone. Oh, yeah. So you have nothing left but, yeah, nothing left but to just sit back and experience. True. It's the, uh, I, I really love how um, the Lonely Planet Guide on India actually starts describing India. And one of the first sentences they use in the Lonely Planet Guide is, India is an assault on the census. Oh, that's so perfect. Because it's, I mean, that could be the positive or negative. It, it's, it's, there's garbage everywhere, but there's beauty everywhere. And, and, and many of these kind of combinations. And yeah, it wake, wakes you up for sure. Yes. It does wake you up. My, um, I took, I have four sons and every, um, other year we try and take a great trip. Mm -hmm. And our favorite family trip was through, um, India. We were in, um, North India and um, in Rajasthan, and it was really mind-boggling and eye-opening for my sons. It was a kind of a life-changing event for them. Good for them. Excellent. Excellent that you actually did that. India is, is I mean, that's a, a long way from the United States. It is. It is. We try and do something very adventurous. Yeah. I want them to know their old mom still has a little adventure in her. <laughs> all right. Um, so how did you get from all that to something which, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, which is your thing, I'm making air quotes here, yes. uh, reality-based leadership? You know, how, I how did, was… How did you move from here, from, one, from A to B there? Absolutely. I was working as a counselor. And as I was working with um, people, I started to notice patterns in um, what led to happiness and success and what didn't. And they actually were the way the mental processes people use. And so many of the people I saw as a professional were really focused on wanting more happiness or more success in their lives. And I would ask them, you know, if that's what they wanted, there's 
thousands of years of universal principles to mm-hmm. learn the principles and then just follow those teachings, whether it's spirituality or religion or philosophy. or it, 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 There's a lot of information out there, how to be happy or successful. Mm-hmm. But I would ask them what they had tried. And a couple of things I noticed when I was a therapist that I noticed when I was a leader is most people wanted to focus on why they couldn't rather than how they could. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to focus on what they thought about instead of what they wanted to create. So I noticed as a counselor, I spent a lot of time in our sessions moving people's energy away from why it wouldn't work or what was wrong Mm -hmm. to what we want to create and how it could work. Mm -hmm. And as I went on to be a leader, I found out that I did more managing energy than I managed people. I literally in every meeting had to move people away from talking about why we shouldn't have to and why it wouldn't work to how it could. And I also noticed in the clients I worked with as a therapist that they really believed if only their reality was different, if only they had more money or if their spouse acted differently or they had a different job or a different boss, they would be happy. Mm -hmm. And I had to teach them a lot that your happiness isn't correlated to your circumstances. It's correlated to the amount of accountability you take for your circumstances. So your -hmm. circumstances aren't why you can't succeed. They're the reality in which you must succeed. Well, I was promoted then into leadership of the whole group, the hospital that did therapy. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that exactly what my patients or clients needed to learn, most of my employees needed to learn or Mm -hmm. were not practicing um, at that time. And so I started to do what I call reality-based leadership. They would say, well, we would be great if only we had more money or we had fewer patients or if the physicians, you know, the doctors did something different. And I was constantly helping them understand that that's our reality. How can we still be successful and happy within that reality? So it was what I learned as far as great mental processes that worked with individuals. I started to apply those to leadership and found out, that we created incredibly successful, happy teams. Mm -hmm. And people started to notice our results and asked us often to speak about how we were getting those. And, um, and and that's really how it all started. So is reality-based leadership, is that linked to your, uh, your book, your ego is not your amigo or no ego? Yes. So the first book I wrote was called reality-based leadership. Uh And the second book was reality-based rules of the workplace. And now this third book is no ego. Okay, so to tell us a little bit more about that. What is what does that mean? Because the first thing that pops up in my mind when you say ego or no ego is Freud, Sigmund Freud. Yeah. So is that linked or where, where do you get that from? It's it's a bit linked, uh-huh. um, although Freud had a very specific way of talking about ego and superego mm-hmm. and id. Um, and we're not with that construct, but um, I – The ego is really our filter on reality. So if you want to be reality-based, you need to know how much your ego comes out to play because it's like a pair of prescription glasses you wear that are oftentimes the wrong prescription. And it really makes sense of the world in a distorted way. It corrupts your data. It paints you as a victim. It tends to paint things as negative. Um, The ego isn't your confidence. It's really this filter on the world that um, if you are believing the narration your ego has, if you're believing everything you think, rather than realizing that your thinking and your ego narrating doesn't represent reality, you'll make better choices and really feel better about work. But uh, um, can I, because what I perceive is my reality. 
Isn't that that's that, that that's what it is? I find beauty. That's my reality. I find ugliness. That's my reality. I feel sad. That's my reality. Isn't my reality my reality? You know, actually, what's surprising to most people is no, it's okay. not. Just like we all have unconscious bias when it comes to a cultural perspective, we um, our ego. Um, if you wake up in the morning, mm-hmm. you don't start by saying, "Let me start thinking." You're already being thought. And your ego is always narrating the world. So I may see a light switch on the wall, if that's where my country has their light switches, if I have electricity. I may see a light switch on the wall. The direct relationship is that I see something on the wall. The minute I go on in my thinking to go, that's a light switch, it's kind of ugly. I think it's the wrong color. Mm -hmm. I wonder why the contractor put it there. He put it there because he was trying to take advantage of me. He probably used that because he Mm -hmm. had it on hand rather than buying what I wanted. Wait a minute. I got screwed. Yeah, I got screwed. (laughs) Everything passed there's something on my wall is the story the ego attaches to it with the final conclusion that I got screwed. Now let's go back and look at reality. All I know for sure is there's a light switch on my wall. Mm -hmm. I don't know that the contractor screwed me. No. And so what most people don't realize is that they're always adding in story, motive, judgment, um, And so even our emotions Mm -hmm. aren't necessarily from our reality. They're usually from the story we made up about our reality, right? Unless it's a real visceral reaction. A great example I use in the workplace is let's say I have a boss Mm -hmm. who calls me up and asks me the status of my project. Mm -hmm. And so far, there's no pain. I answer the phone. He asks me how my project's going. I let him know I'm a little behind. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. Yes. He might say, I've noticed you're behind on a lot of things. That's true, too. Mm-hmm. And I may say, you know, I've noticed that about myself. And I'm just wondering, um, what ideas do you have for me? Because I would like to make sure I'm clear about priorities and focus in the right places. Mm-hmm. So far, there's just no pain in this story. Until I make up the story that he's a micromanager who treats me like a child and um, he's calling me up because he's looking for people to fire Mm -hmm. and I'll probably be fired. And I have a son in med school and he wanted to help children in Uganda and now people in Uganda are going to die. Right. I'm in a lot of pain. But what caused my pain was my story, not my reality. Does that make sense? And so – Most of us, until we really are aware, don't realize how often our ego is determining um, our feelings and our outcomes, by the way, because I'll act based on that interpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I found in my research from my first book to my third book, and the reason it's called No Ego, How Leaders Can Cut the Cost of Workplace Drama, is that there is a waste in most of our workplaces called drama or emotional waste. Mm -hmm. And in my studies, I found out that the average person spends two and a half hours a day Mm -hmm. in drama. So walking around. Define drama in this case. Drama is um, disruptive behavior or thinking. It's Uh gossiping, tattling, complaining, scorekeeping, resisting change, withholding buy-in, withholding engagement, 
um, just really focus on how I'm the victim and how reality's done me wrong. Mm-hmm. It's this this ego story. And ego, when we looked at the sources of drama, because this is 816 hours per year per person, mm-hmm. that is um, – um, waste, it's leaking out of what could be results or happiness or both. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about this this waste, the way we get rid of waste in business mm-hmm. is through better processes. And the way we get rid of emotional waste is through better mental processes. Mm-hmm. And these mental processes are above culture. They are some evidence-based scientific ways of thinking mm-hmm. that actually lead us to Um, less stress and less emotional waste and better results. And so 30% of the drama in the workplace, we looked at the sources of drama came from ego. And my ego is the part of me that's always scorekeeping. It assigns motive. It's judging. It's um, full of biases because, um, you know, it's the venting part of us, the complaining part, mm-hmm. not just noticing what happened. My boss called me and asked about my project, but adding all the rest onto it mm-hmm. that really we make up. It's not based in reality. It's not truthful. Okay. So to, to what extent does I, – you almost answer the question. I just want to restate this again. Um, your approach works in the United States. Does it work as well in Brazil as in India as in, in Germany? You know, I know that it works well in Germany and India. I haven't personally tried it in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, there are um, – the, our culture shows up both in ego and non-ego ways, right? Mm-hmm. And so depending on our culture, that might be the type of flavor our ego shows up in. Mm-hmm. But anytime we feel separate from one another, it's because of judgment. And so we talk a lot about stop judging, start helping. And it's getting beyond why we can't to how we could. It's all of these shifts that we need to make to be able to join in to create things together rather than separate out and then blame another. And that, I believe, is um, um, cross-culturals. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just it, it shows up in some different ways. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, do, we all do the same things, but in a different, different way. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the spiritual path of Buddhism isn't just centered in some cultures, although some cultures have readily adopted it. Mm-hmm. Those universal principles, whether it's, you know, religion or spirituality, when we find the universal principles, they tend to supersede um, cultures. Many people can ascribe to them. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think this, this, I'm trying to think about Indians and their uh, uh, and compared to the to the United States. If you look at, for instance, at hierarchy, hierarchy is a lot stronger in India than it is in yes. um, in in the U.S. For instance, uh, Americans are the most individualistic nation in in the, in the world. You've mentioned that as as well. Indians are uh, relatively a lot more collectivistic. To what extent does that have an influence? And how do you what, what how does it how does it take on a different shape? I think if you look at America, a lot of times we ascribe our suffering to things that we feel we've missed out on individually. Mm-hmm. Where in India, there's still um, mental suffering. It's just descri- ascribed to different um, um, root causes. So in India, when people mm-hmm. are 
collective or more hierarchical, they may blame um, someone above them or they may blame, you know, um, leftover separation like caste on society. In America, we may blame it on that some people, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and, and that some people don't understand where I'm coming from. Right. Anytime we see we blame our external circumstances or other people for our current happiness, mm -hmm. regardless of how it is set up in the culture, yeah. is where we come together in a similar fashion. Okay, that makes good sense. So, in um, you started about this, uh, you, you you painted this example about the light light switch, uh, which actually uh, uh, got there because you got screwed by the uh, the, the, the contractor, the, the fixer, the person who put it there. So, how do I interrupt my own thinking there? How do I stop myself there? Self reflection. So self-reflection and venting are mm -hmm. two mutually exclusive activities. Say that again, so please, Self-reflection yeah. and venting. Venting. So my ego likes to vent. Yes. And it, while I'm venting, I am saying that everybody else is to blame and that I'm the innocent victim. Mm -hmm. To get out of venting into self-reflection involves some personal um, personal curiosity. So if I'm venting about the light switch, a question that says, what do I know for sure could get me out of being so right about the contractor screwing me mm -hmm. to self-reflecting that I really don't know anything for sure. And that dissolves all the emotion that was going into this um, sure state that my contractor took advantage of me. Don't get, yeah. Don't get people Does upset when you say this. You know, the way we present it, um, yes, people don't get upset, but the ego gets mad because self-reflection is the death to the ego. Yeah. And in order to stay alive, the ego likes to stay mildly irritated all the time. It eats anger for lunch. Yeah. Um, let me um, kind of explain. Like in your prefrontal cortex or your frontal cortex is where the ego lives, right? Mm -hmm. And behind that is this incredible place of your best part of your brain, innovation, collaboration. It's kind of, it's beyond ego. So Rumi, the great poet said, um, out beyond um, the field of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. And this is like this field beyond ego. So if you're venting, you're not self-reflecting. If you're self-reflecting, you aren't venting. You just can't do both at the same time. So the whole premise of the book is to move people from venting and gossiping and tattling and judging to the better part of their brain, which is beyond the ego. And you do that through initiating self-reflection either on yourself or another person. A great question for self-reflection for a team or individuals is what would great look like? So if I'm saying we don't have enough money and our leaders don't care about us and corporate office, you know, is trying to um, make it difficult for us mm -hmm. and, and, um, you know, we don't have the IT we need, the technology, we don't have the money. All of that is venting and it could be absolutely true. Yeah. But my job as a leader is not to collude with you and go, I know, therefore there's nothing we can do. My job as a leader is to go beyond the ego and call you up to greatness because that venting's not going to get us any place. Mm. So I might say, okay, everybody, what would great look like? If we were great right now, what would great look like? Mm. And everybody knows what great looks like because it's what we judge other people on. Mm -hmm. We just don't take that advice for ourselves. Right. I might say, gosh, I know what great looks like. It would be that we were coming together, soliciting ideas, focusing on how we can, 
And that just takes the whole energy in the room away from venting and waste into self-reflection and impact. Is that certain to clarify it? Yeah. I wrote down self-reflecting is the death of ego, correct? It really is. Yeah. Okay. That's um, And the ego, venting is the ego's way of avoiding self-reflection. So if one more want, time, that last phrase, please. Venting, yeah. venting is the ego's way of avoiding self-reflection. Right. Okay. So if I'm venting, I'm not going to get to self-reflection right. and I'm not going to get to that place beyond the ego. No, because they're mutually exclusive. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, good stuff. I'm uh, I'm staring. At, I, I I start with a blank sheet and I scribble it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> nice, Chris. <laughs> there was nothing on there, so it's. Uh, I'm enjoying myself here. There's there's one more concept here that I um, that I'd like to explore with you, which is uh, you call that superculture. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit what you what you mean with superculture? Sure. So as I have worked with multicultural teams and um, a lot of the focus got to be on people saying, well, that's really not um, my culture doesn't really support that or that's not natural for me in my culture. And I would say in order for us to create good stuff together, would you entertain um, bypassing your own culture and joining a superculture, which is all about what is science and evidence-based about what could work. So let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. I think we can all agree that the more open communication is, the mm-hmm. more robust dialogue is, mm-hmm. um, the better the answers are that we come up with, right? So yes. if we can have everyone um, on our team somehow get out of their creative minds some ideas that we can all see and hear and put in front of us the better we would all agree that a super culture would be the ability to access everyone's ideas and to understand that because they were communicated to us and yet i sat on a team where three of my colleagues would tell me when i would ask them um What keeps you from bringing ideas forward? Because I trust that you're very brilliant people. And these three colleagues were um, from different cultures, but their cultures all supported um, not speaking up in meetings, Mm -hmm. not not, um, speaking up if there was someone that was um, on the org chart a higher level than Uh them. Uh And so what I – worked with them on, invited them to, and they rose up to, is I said, well, your culture of origin supports that. We know that results come from this other behavior. Mm-hmm. What are things that you could do to be willing to move beyond your culture of origin and join up with a super culture, one that is confident that the more dialogue we have on the table, the better our ideas are. And through that, as a leader, people were really able to look at their cultures of origin and make choices about when does my culture of origin help and when does it hinder? Hmm. And so as an American, I need to know that my culture of origin is all about expression mm-hmm. and my idea. And But there are, very, um, there are many times that my culture of origin is not helpful. Mm. It's hindering. Yep. And so I need to um, um, join up and align with a super culture, which is one that says, let's make sure that we have the ideas of many on the table. Right. And so when you take what we're researching and studying in 
successful worldwide businesses, mm -hmm. there are some things arising that are universal principles, just like in spirituality and religion mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. cross all. And those are happening in business too, where we say we know that great results come from this type of behavior. Mm -hmm. And we as human beings need to be able to move to a higher level of consciousness that goes beyond our culture of origin. And we need to do it by choice. Right? So that we can start saying, I'm good at my culture of origin, but I could be part of great by moving yeah. beyond my culture of origin. And so when people talk to me about culture, I also like to talk to them about um, how could both be true? How could your culture of origin be um, fantastic as a foundation? And how can you, when it works, move to a super culture and align with that? Yeah. Good stuff. And how can you be good space travelers back and forth? Sounds like a book. Yeah, a exactly. Let's do it together. Stuff for yeah, it. why not? No, I'll, I'll partner with you, Chris. I've got the concept, but let's flush it out. No, there's good stuff here. It's because it's it's you're going from good to great. Somebody else wrote about that as well. I know. From good I know to great, him. but that's it's, it's no, but you can. I mean, if good is your own culture, then how about great? You know, no culture yeah. is great. It's only good. It is what it is. It so. is, and and. Where some of this started to dawn on me, Chris, and I know you believe this too because I've looked at some of your stuff, is when I was in healthcare uh -huh. and we um, in in the United States, in our rural area, started to um, care for people from many different parts of the globe, mm -hmm. they handed out to be culturally sensitive like a chart. And if somebody was Somalia, then you, know, you follow the chart and they right. obviously were X, Y, and Z. Yeah. It was very prescriptive and impossible. One, not everybody – just because you're Somalian is X, Y, and Z. No. And secondly, you had to memorize the chart. And my staff was just screwing this up all over the place, <laughs> right? And so I said, let's just simplify this. And I think superculture is a way to simplify it. I said, why don't you just ask every patient that you connect with? Yeah. What's one thing I could do to show my respect for who you are right. and your culture? What's one thing I could do that would show you that I value that and that I want to stress the importance of um, acknowledging that in you? And that one question, they could they could use it anywhere, solicited the self-referral where people were able to let you know what was important to them. And then we were able to um, make that happen. Cool. Excellent. I think we need to talk about this, Superculture, a book. Um but after the uh, the interview, then <laughs> and and then get the details. I'm looking at the clock here, Sai. We're 35 minutes into um, oh my goodness into recording. That means uh, that uh, we've got some good stuff going for sure. So there are a couple of things still I'd like to uh, I'd like to talk about. Um, of course, where can people get the book? You know, any of their local booksellers, mm -hmm. um, obviously online, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, you can pre-order mm -hmm. if you're listening to this before September 19, 2017. Uh -huh. um, otherwise, any major bookseller. Okay, excellent. And um, the, the standard question I ask everyone, can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent? Absolutely. My best tip is stop believing everything you think. Just because you thought it doesn't mean it's true. So question your thinking. Um, secondly, stop judging, start helping. Notice how quick you are to judge what's wrong with something rather than take it in and think about how can I add um, to um, this rather than um, negate it or take away. Yeah. 
Um, and the um, third one, I think, is um, what I call open heart, open mind. Whenever my mind is closing down where I'm judging something, I try and open my heart up to be more compassionate. Yeah. And whenever my heart is um, clamping down that I'm not open to another person or being, I try and get mentally flexible and open my mind up. The part of me that closes is usually the hardest to open. So I use the opposite. If my heart's open, my mind's open. If my mind's open, my heart's open. And so I just notice what's the state of my mind. If it's closing, I can open my heart. My mind comes back open. And so I do a lot of work when I'm in new situations or in uncharted waters where I just keep checking, is my mind open? Is my heart open? Is my mind open? Is my heart open? And if I'm open, then I'm learning a lot and I'm accessing all the help I need in order to be a good player on that team. Great. Sounds good. Three tips from Cy Wakeman. How can people get in touch with you if they want to? Absolutely. Our website is realitybasedleadership.com. And you can follow me at Cy Wakeman on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all those great social media channels. Excellent. Now, there's one last thing, and that's only for the people that are watching this on YouTube, because you can actually watch this on YouTube by going to culturematters.com slash YouTube. The paintings, Sai, because we started with that. Because, <laughs> I mean, I've been staring at you and staring at the paintings. And the paintings. So tell us I, quickly, what's the background about behind the paintings here? The um, gentleman who painted them, and his name is Adria, A-D-R-I-A, uh-huh. he, this is called Crazy Friday. He is um, currently in Mexico, which is where I bought the paintings. But when he was younger, the um, his history, I've been told, is that um, as a young boy, he cleaned out workshops and Picasso um, actually worked in those workshops. So he was exposed, as you can see, some influence from Picasso, but his work is amazing. Yes, very much it looked like it. You, should, you actually gave me a, a bit of a round tour in your office. You don't have to do that right now. <laughs> but it's uh, for these those people who are listening to the podcast, the audio version only, it's very much worth going to the uh, the YouTube channel because the, it's, it's the first thing that pops to mind or comes to mind is indeed Picasso. All right, very colorful, colorful personality, colorful painting, colorful subjects as well. Thank you so much, Sai, for um, being on the show, and I'm pretty sure we'll talk again in the future. Great, it's been a pleasure, Chris. Bye-bye. Thanks, Sai, and thanks for um, talking a little bit towards the end about your um, your paintings as well. Reality-based leadership, no ego. Get the book, and um, I really think it's a, it's a very interesting way of approaching leadership towards uh, getting the ego out of the way. I really uh, love the phrase, self-reflecting is the death of ego. All right, fair enough. This was episode 88 of the Culture Matters podcast. I'll be back in two weeks' time. What I really appreciate if you could leave a YouTube, uh, YouTube, an iTunes, an iTunes review in iTunes, of course. Um, and if you would know by any chance a, a good guest, then why not get to drive or write myself an email, write me an email, and um, possibly you can work something out. All right, enough said. I'll talk to you in two weeks' time. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.